0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Well, guys, we are going to be talking about Sabbath today, and in the lead up to this sermon, I've been thinking and listening and reading a lot. And I sort of feel like we're in the middle of a real cultural moment when it comes to rest. I feel like we're in the middle of something where God is speaking to us about it and we can do something about it, but if we ignore him, there is going to be some consequences. And, and something that has been just stuck in my head as I've been listening is this story told by a guy named A.J. Swoboda. And he, he was describing the difference between World War II and Vietnam and the, con- the, the outcomes for the veterans who fought in those wars. Because on on the one hand, you've got World War II, what is known as the greatest generation, right? They came home from the war, and they immediately started having lots of kids. There was this euphoria at having combated and defeated the scourge of evil. They created what's known as the baby boomers. If you're a baby boomer, you just want to raise your hand, right? We've got a couple around us, right? Great generation. And yet when you look at some of the outcomes for the greatest generation, it's, it's actually really interesting because um, they come back from an incredibly bloody and difficult war, and yet rates of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, low. Rates of addiction and drug abuse, really low. Rates of spousal abuse, really low. Suicides, really low. And they've actually done some long-term studies into the greatest generation, have found that they tend to fare much better than most other cohorts, most other generations. Then you've got Vietnam. And Vietnam wasn't that long ago. It was about 40 years. It wasn't a popular war. Now, when you look at the outcome for veterans who fought in Vietnam, the story is incredibly different. They literally invent the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, after doing research into Vietnam veterans. They come back from the war. Rates of PTSD are incredibly high. Suicide rates, incredibly high. There's a heroin epidemic They come back. Drug abuse, incredibly high. Spousal abuse rates, incredibly high. And one of the questions that often gets asked is, what's... What's the difference between these two wars? Because it's not like World War II wasn't bloody. Three percent of the world's population died in World War II compared to only one and a half million in Vietnam. What's, what's the difference? Well, there is one theory. See, when Vietnam ended, everyone got on a plane and two days later they were back home in suburbia holding their kids. Imagine how jarring that would be. One moment you're in a war, you're fighting it, you're worried, concerned for your life, and the next you're packing up the groceries. It's jarring. But in in World War II, that's not what happened. In World War II, the war finished and everyone got on boats. And it took two to three to four months to get home. And what, what do you do when you're on a boat for two or three, four months? You talk about what you've just experienced. You talk about it with the people that you've just fought evil with. You process the experience that you've just had. You grieve the losses that you've experienced. Only one group of soldiers was actually given an an opportunity to process what they went through in war. And the theory is that's what's led to this enormous amount of difference in the outcomes for them. And as I think about the difference in these outcomes, I wonder if we're in a very particular, very similar position. We have no room to process what our experiences are anymore. We have no room or time to grieve our losses. We just keep moving and moving and moving at a faster and faster pace, and it's incredibly jarring. And so we come this morning, and the reality is for many of us, we're exhausted. We're tired, we're burdened, we're broken by the pace of life. And so what I feel like God wants us to do this morning is to spend some time looking at what rest He actually offers us. Because I, I believe wholeheartedly that God loves you more than the world does, and that His desire for you is more than burnout. He wants us to experience this rest. And so I want to take a look at a couple of verses. We're going to be all over the Bible today, um, from Matthew to Exodus to, to other places. And so I want to take a look at what Jesus says about rest. So we're going to set a foundation of rest from Matthew. We're going to look at the Sabbath, and then we're going to get very, very practical. So I encourage you to pick up your Bibles. If you don't own one, congrats, that's now your one. Um, but we're going to take a look at Matthew 11 right now. So Matthew eleven is this incredible chapter of comparison and contrast. If you, if you just read Matthew eleven as part of a devotional, it'd be great because Jesus is constantly playing up his godliness, his God likeness, his divinity. So in the, in the opening words of, of, of John eleven, that John the uh, the apostle or not John the apostle, John the Baptist comes to him and says, "Are you the one that is to come, or should we expect someone else?" And Jesus just says, "Well." The blind are seen, the lame are walking, those who are lepers are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. So Jesus is just flexing, right? Are you, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's meant to come? Well, I don't know. Ask the guy I just raised from the dead, right? So Jesus is constantly playing up, I'm God. Just so you know, I'm God. And so we come to the end of this, this long statement where Jesus is constantly showing, I'm God, I'm God, to Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. You can follow on the screen. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. What Jesus is saying is that a culture has a blindness to the things of God. There is a secret wisdom that God gives to a select few, and it's Jesus. What he's saying is that there is wisdom that can only be had in Jesus. You're not going to find it elsewhere. If you go looking for it elsewhere, it's going to lead to burnout and brokenness. Right? And I, I wonder this morning if that's where most of us are. We've spent... All this time thinking and meditating upon the wisdom of the world, about how to hack our lives, about how to organize and order things in such a way that we can fit as much in as possible. And what God is saying is there's actually a secret wisdom that only I can give you. Jesus has something that only he can give you. And then we go on to 11 verse 28 to 30. Come to me... All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So a yoke is this enormous piece of wood. We've actually got a photo of it up here. it will be placed on two beasts to help them, allow them to do an incredible amount of work. And what Jesus is saying is something beautifully simple. In order to pick up my light and easy yoke, you're going to have to place something down. In order to pick up a light and easy burden that I have, you're going to need to place down the burden of the world. The truth is, for many of us, the reason that we're so tired, the reason we're so burdened, is not just because things are out of our control, that our lives are so chaotic and we don't know how to respond to it. For many of us, it's the simple fact that we've picked up stuff and we refuse to put it down. We're holding on to things that we we can't put down. And I get this really vivid imagery this morning of people walking into church with these heavy burdens across their back and Jesus is saying, I offer real rest. All you need to do is place your yoke down. All you need to do is put this burden down. My my yoke is light and easy, don't you want it? And we're just sitting here going, I can't. I I can't place down this burden, Jesus. And I get it. See, as a pastor, one of the most difficult things for me to wrap my head around, one, one of the, one, uh, every, something every pastor secretly hates is holidays. Right? We, we hate going on holidays. And it's not just like the Moses thing, right? That we go away for a month and then we come back and everyone's made like a golden statue and they're worshipping a cow, right? It's not, it's not like that, right? Like That might happen, I don't know. I trust you guys more than that, but it could happen, Right? The real fear is that we come back and everything's exactly how it was or maybe even better. And it'll be revealed that we actually aren't that important. And so we don't go on holidays and we hold on to these things for fear of being shown that we're actually not that important. And I wonder if many of us are in the same boat. We're holding on to these heavy burdens because they make us feel important, because they make us feel needed, because they make us feel valuable. Jesus is actually saying, you need to place them down at my feet. If you want to experience true rest, you're going to need to put down something. You can't pick up both my yoke and the yoke of the world. So what is it for you? What is the yoke that you're carrying that is so enormously tiring? It's worth having a think about it. It's worth, like, go, go, go home and have lunch and say, what... what what actually is it that's leading to my burnout? What is it actually that's leading to my tiredness, to, my broken, to this burden that I'm carrying? Because we might need to place it down. We go on to Matthew 12. Jesus says this At the time Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, being Jesus, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they, they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or those who, those who are with him to eat, but only for the priests. Haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So, so what's going on? We actually get an insight into the culture of the time, the culture of Jesus, and what's leading to their burnout and their brokenness, right? Because what's happening is that Jesus is walking somewhere on the Sabbath, and the disciples are hungry, so they start getting some, some, some I don't know, some heads of grain to eat. I don't know why you want to eat just a head of grain. That seems weird, but you're a disciple, whatever, right? And, and so the, the, the Pharisees come along, and they start saying, Jesus, you know they're not meant to do this. Because in the culture, the Sabbath was incredibly important. They knew that it was important for them to keep the Sabbath holy, right? Genesis 1, keep the Sabbath holy. Exodus, what we're going to look at in a moment, keep the Sabbath holy. And so what the Pharisees would do was create 600 regulations to make sure that no one would even come close to breaking the Sabbath. And so they're not, they're not really concerned that anyone's broken the Sabbath. They're concerned that someone's broken the regulations. It's like if the government was so concerned about everybody speeding that they made a law that on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you just don't drive your car. It's like, well, that's, that's way worse, right? There was these inc- incredible amount of regulations that were placing a burden onto the backs of their people. They couldn't do what was good. Jesus' men were hungry... And yet they couldn't eat. Jesus does one of my favorite things. He goes to the people who are meant to be the Bible teachers, who are meant to be the smart ones, who are meant to be those who have spent time in the text and says, you guys haven't even read the thing. He reminds them that David violated the Sabbath. And then he says two incredibly important things. Because I can imagine you guys sitting here and going, well, that's great. Jesus is having a weird conversation about regulations, about heads of grain. Why is that important to me today? Why is that important to my rest? It's because of the last two verses in Matthew 12 and because of something Jesus says in Mark. In in verses 7 to 8, he says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is is Lord of the Sabbath. And in Mark chapter 2, he says this, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to reclaim the Sabbath, the blessing that God has given, from this mountain of legalistic, religious sentiment that has burdened our people. The Sabbath is a blessing and not a burden. It's a gift, not a curse, and I'm king of it. Jesus is king of the Sabbath, and he wants to recapture it for us. So summary... Secret wisdom from God, only available in Jesus. To pick up the rest of Jesus, we need to place the yoke of the world down and pick up the yoke of Jesus. The Sabbath is a gift, not a curse, and Jesus is king of the Sabbath. So, what's the Sabbath? Sabbath is something that um, you might have grown up observing, partaking in, but something by and large in our culture, in our, even in our churches, we, we sort of just ignore it. We don't, we don't really do the Sabbath. It's like an older thing. It's a Jewish thing. Well, I also want to spend some time working out what is the Sabbath because it's actually super important. Right? If you, you, you can't read the Old Testament without hearing about the Sabbath. Genesis chapter 2, right? I've made the Sabbath for you. Keep the Sabbath holy. Like that's, that's God's instruction, right? It's in Leviticus, it's in Deuteronomy, it's in Exodus, it's in Isaiah, it's in all these places that God instructs Israel to keep the Sabbath. So let's have a read of Exodus and the Ten Commandments. It can be found in Exodus 20 if you want to follow along in your books, or if you're super lazy like I usually am, you can look at the screen. Now, I think if you, if you read the Ten Commandments... They, most of them make sense, to be honest with you. Right? You don't need to be particularly religious to understand the Ten Commandments. And I think like, they're, they're pretty, pretty straightforward. It's stuff like, don't have any other gods beside God. Well, that makes sense if you're going to be a God worshipper. Don't make an idol for yourself and worship it. Well, again, right? we've just learned about the calves, like the cows, like, let's not make any more of those. Okay? Don't misuse the name of God. Yep, that makes sense. Okay, the, the fifth Honour your, your father and your mother so that you may have a long life. That makes sense. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't covet your neighbor's house or his wife. Well, They make, they make a lot of sense. And then we come to the, the, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labour six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien, that means stranger, who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the Sabbath. Therefore, the the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. This is one of the commandments. Keep the Sabbath day holy. There's to be six days of work and one day of rest. So Pete Scazzaro, a New York City pastor, says this about the Sabbath. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. That means to cease, to stop working. It refers to doing nothing related to work for a 24-hour period each week. It refers to this unit of time around which we are to orient our entire lives as holy, meaning separate from the other six days of creation. Sabbath provides an additional rhythm for an entire reorientation of our lives around the living God. On the Sabbath, we imitate God by stopping our work and resting. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And as I look out this morning, I see a lot of hesitation and maybe concern. I get it. I'm reminded again by a story that A.J. Swoboda told. He's a, a church planner and a theologian from Portland, and he started a church. And about five years into the church plan, he started noticing that his people were getting really, really, really tired. And it happens. Like, we just spend a lot of time together. You, you get a feel for when people are tired, when they're close to burnout, when they need to pull back. And so what he decided to do was, I'm going to institute a month of Sabbath, we're not going to run a service, there's going to be no events, there's going to be no, just no, no gathering, nothing, no program. We're just going to meet in a field on a Sunday and pray together and then go home. He says it was one of the most difficult times, his entire leadership as a pastor, half the church threatened to leave. And so he's sitting there in this finance meeting with his elders who are super concerned that the church is about to fold. And he has this epiphany, this realisation. This is what he writes in his book, Subversive Sabbath. Sitting there, it dawned on me that if I were to cheat on my wife, I would lose my job. If I stole from the church, I would be run out of town. If I lied about the church finances, I would be in huge trouble. If I worshipped another god, I'd be removed. There are nine commandments that if I chose to break, I might lose my ministry over. But if I did not keep a Sabbath day, I would probably get a raise. We have constructed a church culture that celebrates breaking the fourth commandment. We live in a culture that incentivizes ignoring what God has specifically told us to remember. And I think there's a good reason for it. I think the reason that we don't keep the Sabbath is not because it's difficult or because it's cumbersome or it's hard to organise. I think it's because it steps on every single one of our idols that we worship the rest of the week. See, a desire to be famous and productive is crucified by the Sabbath. A complete day of resting and focusing on God and His fame instead of your own, crucifies it. A desire to be well liked, to be well thought of, crucified, right? You have to say no to people. I I can't do that. I'm practicing the Sabbath. A desire to be satisfied by everything and anything but Jesus is crucified by the Sabbath. It says, I can only be satisfied in God alone. I need to take one day out of the precious seven I have and focus on Jesus. The reason that we don't practice the Sabbath is because it crucifies all these other things that we worship day by day, week to week. We don't have ten commandments. We have nine commandments and one very strong suggestion. But God gave us the Sabbath as a gift. Right? It's a blessing, not a burden. Jesus is still king of the Sabbath. And I, I, I believe this crazy thing that God just knows more than we do. Right? I, I just know myself that I do way too many dumb things. And so if God is suggesting something and I'm not doing it, I want, I want to do what God does. So what do we do? We remember the Sabbath. It's interesting that if you actually go through Exodus 20 and you take a look at the commandments, there's only one that starts with the word remember. It's almost like God knows that that's the one we're going to forget the most. Like He doesn't say, remember not to murder. right? We just sort of know that one. Like We're not going around trying to murder each other and being like, hey Joe, sorry, Like please don't murder me. Remember God said that? Oh, that's right, I forgot, I'm so sorry. Right? We don't do that. The only one that we have trouble remembering is the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So what I want to do with the rest of our time together this morning is present a vision for what the Sabbath can look like in our 21st century. See, I'm very aware that we live complex lives and the way that I Sabbath and the way that I rest is going to be completely different to you. I'm a 29-year-old with no kids and a flexible job, right? It's going to be different. And so here's my encouragement to you. At lunch, at home, at dinner, with friends, with your partner, with your family, ask yourself, what is it going to look like for us to partake in the Sabbath? What is it going to look like for us to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy? Because we need to. I think there's, there's four ways that we can remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And I think they're incredibly helpful. I didn't come up with these. They come from a combination of people. One's Marva Dawn. She wrote a book, Keep the Sabbath Holy. It's it's the kind of book you might find in your mum's house and go, well, that's a dodgy cover, right? Because it's Keep the Sabbath Holy, but it's got a W in it, right? Incredibly helpful, though. And John Tyson is another guy who's given a lot of talks on this. And I found their framework really helpful, so I've, I've leaned on that a little bit. So four rhythms that we can all practice to remember the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath holy. Here's the first one, ceasing. The first movement of the Sabbath is to cease, to deliberately remember that we have stopped trying to be God. We put down our work and we stop. We stop thinking about all the things that need to be done this week. We stop thinking about the checklist that we've created for ourselves. We stop thinking about the person that we need to call back this week. We stop, we cease, we relent. For me, that involves two things. Every single Sabbath, I have to do two things. One is I have to turn my phone off, and the second is I need to take my watch. So if I'm at home... I literally put my phone in a shed outside away from me. I need to create some, pr- some distance between me and my phone because it is my connection to an out-of-control world. I need to put it down, and I, I, just, I need to stop it. I can't even just put it on do not disturb it. It needs to be off. And I need to take my watch off. I was really convicted by listening to a guy, Calvin Miller. He says this about watches. Intimacy with God cannot be rushed. We cannot enjoy the presence of God if we are always looking at our watches. God is the Lord of time, and I am not. Removing my phone, removing my watch, means that I disconnect from this culture of busyness. Because it's interesting that if you actually look through the entirety of the Bible, busy is a word that's never attributed to God or Jesus once. There's actually only one spiritual entity in the whole of Scripture that's described as busy. In Job chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. In other words, I've been hustling. I've been busy. What that means is that busyness is not a divine quality. It's a demonic one. It just is. We're not designed to be this busy. And ceasing cuts its knees out from under it. So let me encourage you. You're not the Lord. You're not that important. And when you come back from a day of disconnecting to the pace of life that everyone else is participating in, not much is going to change. So take the day off. Cease, stop, relent. The second movement is rest. It's the movement from putting down to picking up. In ceasing, we put down the burdens of the world. We disconnect from the pace of life, and in rest, we pick up the light and easy yoke of Jesus. Rest doesn't just happen. No, I don't know if you work for yourself or you have a boss or whatever. No boss is like, you know what? You've been working really, really hard these last couple of weeks. You know what? You should take two. No, no, I'm going to give you three weeks off, just extra rest. I'm going to cover you. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Like, no one is ever going to tell you that. You're going to need to fight for rest. Because what most of us do, this is something John Tyson says, is that we rest like this. We get the first image up. If these are our batteries, we rest when we are so close to burning out That's not funny. You know when the, the, this church is emptiest? It's, it's over the long weekends. It's almost as if everybody sees a chance to get a little bit further, a little bit of rest and recovery, and we just run at it. Right? And that's not, that's not a, like a, a rebuke or anything. Like, it's just, I'm just noticing it. Right? We rest when we're so close to burnout, it's not funny. Right? And so what happens is we go away for a weekend or we take a week off and we come back. We're not, we're, not, we're not fully recharged. We get to the point where we can maintain it. We can maintain the pace. Can we go to the next slide? But what do we, what do we miss out in the bit that we're not resting in? Joy, peace, intimacy, sustainability, calling, Intimacy with God. A major problem with our culture is that we know how to relax and not rest. We know how to relax and not renew ourselves in the Lord. Because let me just be honest with you, right? Sitting down and watching an entire season of Netflix whilst eating like a massive pizza is incredibly relaxing. It just is, right? It's it's relaxing. It's great. I enjoy it, right? I'm a Netflix binger. That's my confession, right? It's great. It does not renew you. It doesn't lead to secret wisdom from the Lord. It doesn't lead to intimacy with God. It doesn't lead to being filled with the Spirit. It doesn't lead to restfulness, right? John Tyson has this quote. He says, "We don't know how to rest. What we do instead is medicate our mediocrity." Week by week, we binge on Netflix and we do these things that are relaxing so that we can get through the week. Right? We're not rested at all. So what do we do? I think it comes down to something that's actually very simple. What stirs your affections for the Lord? What stirs your affections for Jesus? What makes you so excited about Jesus? Right? It's not going to be the same for everyone, but ask yourself the honest question, what is it that when I do, I can rest in God? Right? For me, it involves silence and beauty. So I will often drive somewhere far away and get on my bike and just, just ride in silence and just revel in how good God is. So this Friday, I went down to Lawn and I rode up one of the hills in Lawn. I took out my headphones and no one else was around and I'm just talking with God as I'm cycling, which will sound, seem very weird right, if you come up behind me. right? But that's what restores my soul. Right? Ask yourself the honest question. I'm just going to guess. Riding up hills and talking to God in like beauty, like it might, that might not be it for you. right? That's fine. What stirs your affections for Jesus? Do it. I'm not saying that you can't watch Netflix. I'm not saying that you can't eat pizza. In fact, we're going to get to a movement where you should eat pizza, right? if that's your thing. But it's just not renewal. I think God wants renewal for us. He wants fullness for us. So what stirs your affections for him? The third movement, ceasing, resting, embracing. We live in a world that is constantly trying to distort our identity. And I was really taken from listening and reading the story of John. John's the guy who wrote wrote like, he wrote a stack of the gospel. He's a really important figure in the New Testament in the early church. But when he first meets Jesus, Jesus gives him and his brother the title, Sons of Thunder, right? You just like cue the ACDC music. Thunder, right? And he earns it. Right? He earns the title, Son of Thunder. In, in Luke, when Jesus is, um, Jesus is trying to get to Jerusalem, he goes through Samaria, and the Samarians don't want to bar of him. This is, this is John's response. When the disciple James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? It's like, okay, son of thunder. Right? Jesus is probably like, John, it's never fire and brimstone. Right? It's like, I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come to love people. Right? It's never f- consuming fire from heaven. But then there's this really interesting transition that starts to happen. I don't know if you've read 1, John, 2, John, 3, John, but this guy's he's all about love. God is love. Like to be to be a Christian is to be loved by God and to love God, right? It's to know this God of love. And in fact, if you read the book of John, you start to realize that the Son of Thunder starts calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So so how does how does the Son of Thunder who's concerned about sending consuming fire from heaven to kill these Sumerians, become the apostle of love? Well, I think it's something like what happens in John chapter 13. John 13 is this this chapter of confusion. There's a lot going on. The disciples' picture of Jesus as his military political rulers crumbling. Jesus Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He calls out um, Judas. He says, Judas, you're going to betray me. And Judas runs away. Peter says, Lord, I'll never betray you. Judas says, yes, you will. The disciples are confused. And then this happens. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his, dis- one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, John, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was that Jesus was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, what is it? How does a son of thunder become an apostle of love? In the middle of crisis and confusion, John places his head on the chest of Jesus. It's this incredibly intimate moment When John is most confused about what's going on, he seeks intimacy with Jesus. Sabbath is where we place down the broken identities that we've lived out of all week and pick up who we really are. A.J. Soboda again has this quote, which I, I just love. He says this, Sabbath is a scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do, Rather, we are who we are loved by. Sabbath embracing is heading to the, the chest of Jesus. It's heading to spend time with God where we can have our identities renewed. I think this is incredibly important. I've... Um, this year I've been seeing a coach with the diocese. So the Anglican Diocese is sort of like a governing body and they've organised a coach. And we, I sort of go to them and we talk about lots of problems and it might be I'm having an issue with a leader, it might be I'm trying to work out how to move this programme. And one of the things that we've been working with is I find it incredibly hard to slow down. Like I'm not preaching this sermon because I know how to do it. I'm preaching this sermon because I'm trying to learn. We're having this conversation, and I confess to him that I just, I just really, really want Jesus to say to me at the end of my life, well done, good and faithful servant. This is a supreme motivation underlying so much of my inability to stop, and he says, Jimmy, what's the gospel? Okay. Well, you know, Jesus came and he lived and he died, and because, like, because he died, and I believe in him, he took away all my sins, and I can enjoy eternal life with God. Okay. So, did you earn that? Um, no. So, did you ex- did you earn acceptance from God? No. So, did you earn the pleasure of God? No. Jesus did that. So, what makes you think that Jesus hasn't earned this for you as well? He turns to me and goes, Jimmy, you've been living out of a lie for the majority of your life. and I'm here to remind you of what the truth is. To be honest with you, I just, I just started crying. Like it, was, it was an incredibly vulnerable moment for me where my identity was restored. I'm a son. I don't have to earn the approval of God. Our culture... Wants to distort our identities, and in Sabbath we remember who we really are. I'm a child of God. The last movement, and potentially most people's favourite movement, is feasting. I'm a good feaster. In Jewish communities that practice the Sabbath, there are songs that they only sing on the Sabbath. There are foods that they only eat on the Sabbath. According to some rabbis, right, if you're married, you should have sex on the Sabbath. Right? And some of us are now going, yeah, we should practice the Sabbath. That sounds like a good idea. Let's talk about that. Right? Sabbath is a day to feast on the goodness that God has bestowed upon us, to enjoy all the gifts that God has given us. Week in, week out. We have an IV drip to the brokenness of the world. We need to feast on the goodness of God. Right? We need to think about what is good and true and lovely and honourable and excellent. Feast on it. So I don't know what that looks like for you, but like, is there a meal that you really, really enjoy? That's a Sabbath meal. For me, it's pulled pork and bacon. Oh. Some of you want the Sabbath now, right? Because I look forward to that. I feast on that. That's incredibly enjoyable. Right? We get these little bites in the week. Sabbath is a day to feast. It's a day to un- unbuckle your belts. Sabbath is not a day of the diet. Right? It's a day of enjoying all that God has given us. So what does the Sabbath look like for us? Look, I, don't, I don't think the Sabbath needs to be a particular day. That, you, that I mean, it doesn't need to be like a Sunday or a Saturday. In fact, a couple of times in the New Testament, Paul sort of says, one day is not better than the other. Pick one. But pick it and honour it and remember it and keep it. Because I think the Sabbath to me is sort of like, you've had a really tough week, but you know the Sabbath is coming. And it's like, oh. The Sabbath is coming. Oh, the Sabbath is here. I can rest. I can remember who I am. I can cease. I can feast. Oh, it's pulled pork day. Oh. And then when the Sabbath is gone, I go, oh, it's okay. It's only six more days. So many of us are tired because we don't remember the Sabbath. We just. We, we, it's not one day a week. It might be one day a month or one day a year we don't take time to rest and so what god wants us to remind wants to remind us is that he's actually instituted one day a week to cease to rest in him to embrace our identities and to feast on his goodness so church can i just encourage you if we want to be a rested church if we want to be a church that is fully rested we're going to need to be a sabbathing church we're going to be in a church that stops and rests and embraces and feasts. And I think it would, be, it would make an enormous difference in our lives. Okay? Sabbath is weird. I get that. Right? It's difficult. I get that. It's cumbersome. I get that. But God has commanded it, So let us honor him and glorify him by keeping and remembering the Sabbath. Let me encourage you. you. You probably have lots of questions about the Sabbath, what it looks like, right? I think that's why the, the Pharisees came up with like 600 questions or regulations, right? Send your questions in. I'd love to answer them because I know that there's more here than, than what I've got time for. But my encouragement to you is to work out what day it is, cease, stop, embrace, Feast. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we can open up this book that desires us not to be defined by what we do, but who we're loved by. God, would you remind us who we're loved by this morning? Would you remind us that you've actually given us this gift, not as a burden, but as a blessing? The world is not going to tell us this secret knowledge from the Lord. Jesus offers us this thing to pick up because he is king of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a blessing. God, help us this week as we we go home to have conversations around what does the Sabbath look like in our lives. Encourage us and convict us so that we would be a Sabbathing people. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.